As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gabriel Mercotti, and we both thank you for joining us on this lovely Monday morning, a nice crisp Monday morning, I may add, alongside us in the studio. Hey, I'm excited because I think it's our first appearance together of 2019. Alison Rudd! I'm excited too. (laughs) And now on the line, the Times man on the Manchester beat, the man who you can tell from his accent is not exactly very mank, (laughs) Paul Hurst. Later on, we'll be talking about Leeds, Bielsa, and his spies and sort of the moral degradation uh, of uh, the English game. But we're not going to start there, are we? No, we're not. We're going to start at Wembley, where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's perfect start as Manchester United manager continued with victory over Tottenham. Solskjaer becomes the first United manager to win his first six games in charge, also equaling Sir Matt Busby's record of winning his first five league games. Paul, what have you made then of the start Solskjaer has made and what you saw yesterday? It's been completely beyond my expectations, particularly if you look at how they finished under Jose Mourinho. It looks like two completely different teams at the moment. I mean, Mourinho spent most of his time hammering the players or certainly not praising them. And Solskjaer yesterday in his press conference had named every, you know, every United player who played in that team and praised them. So I think therein lies the key to the to Solskjaer's success, he's actually given them belief. He's actually praised them, you know, given them, you know, reason to believe that they can beat teams like Tottenham. And when Tottenham came to Old Trafford earlier this season and won three 0 it wasn't unexpected. It was really kind of, you know, United just folded basically. But yesterday there was such, it was such a different kind of performance. A really a strong defence, particularly in the second half. Obviously De Gea played extremely well. Um, and I think one of the most startling things was seeing how Solskjaer line the team up. You know, it wasn't just a, a gung ho four three three goal for it. It was a very clever diamond, um, and Lingard acting as a, almost a false nine with with Marshall and Rashford playing quite wide on the wings and and trying to pick holes in the defence and trying to stretch the the Spurs defence. So you know, everyone's been saying Solskjaer has just put smiles on their faces. He's brought a brought a positive atmosphere, which he has done. But yesterday, he proved that he did have a good tactical uh, aspect to his management as well. I'm going to wear my Duncan Castles hat for a minute, because I assume nobody else will. What if I were to say to you that those first five games that, that he won were games against rubbish opponents that Mourinho would have easily won too? And then even this game against Spurs, yeah, you can talk about how nice he is and he name-checks everybody and whatever. They score a goal because Paul Pogba pulls out a Hollywood ball and and Rashford 
has a lucky finish. And then the rest of it is just David De Gea doing miracles. And the first time they played Spurs, might I add, with Mourinho, even though they um, they did lose 3-0 at home, I think it was, um, in the first half, they actually dominated Spurs with Jose Mourinho. Okay, now I'm going to remove my Duncan Castle's hat. What would you answer to that? I'd say that these are exactly the kind of games, the games that you're on about, the games like Cardiff, Huddersfield, Newcastle, to a lesser extent, Reading, Bournemouth, those are the games that United lost last season. Those are the games that United lost points earlier this season while they kind of fell away. That Tottenham game, I completely disagreed with Mourinho that, that night. But, you know, they, you know even, if, even if they did play well in parts of that Tottenham game at Old Trafford, the scoreboard still said Man United nil, Tottenham three, which is very embarrassing. The sort of easy, in inverted quotes, the, the kind of winnable games, the games that should United should be winning, Mourinho, you know, failed to deliver those this season. You can't really put a price on those, you know, those kind of guaranteed points that you should be getting against the, the lower teams. And you know, they, they've blown these teams away as well. It's not, you can never see a Mourinho team blowing the opposition away, particularly at Old Trafford. I don't think it happened once really in the, in this spell. Not over ninety minutes anyway. Certainly, you know, there was there were flashes for forty-five minutes, but not a complete ninety-minute performance. Alison, what do you make then of Solskjaer's United in comparison to Mourinho's? Are they more enjoyable to watch now? They're more enjoyable as a, a complete entity. Even as someone who grew up a Liverpool fan, I do like the way there are about 400 people on the United bench who celebrate every goal as though they've just won Champions League final. That sense of togetherness, it's infectious. It's really hard not to smile watching them. That is weird, I will give you that. I would also like to say in defence of Solskjaer, and this relentless, oh, but look at who he's played. And they relied on David De Gea to win. The stress that goes with taking over at Man United, regardless of whether you're caretaker and whether you're on loan from a Norwegian club or not, the stress of coming in and everyone saying, ah, well, it's a nice run in. They're the easy games you get. I mean, it's nonsense because we're very fond of saying there are no easy games in the Premier League. I remember Huddersfield out playing um, Manchester United when they were under... Mourinho, it is, it is possible, very possible for all the teams that Man United have played for them to have lifted their game and, and embarrassed somebody new in the job who would have been written out of that job almost 10 minutes after getting there. For him to peg away at it and get the results and show improvement as opposed to it just being the bounce of someone who comes in and smiles and praises as opposed to criticises, I think it's slightly patronising of Solskjaer. We are also fond of damning managers who have failed, whereas, in fact, if you fail, you should be a better manager for it. So he failed at Cardiff as a manager. But who are we to know what he didn't learn from that experience? Went back to Norway, kept being a manager with ambition, but he, you know, he, he just did his job and then was seen as the perfect personality to, 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 to bring some sunshine back into Old Trafford. That's the Rafa Benitez argument, Alison, who was absolutely shockingly beyond terrible in his first three jobs. And then he works his way back and wins two league titles at Valencia and, uh, and a Champions League. In the well, I, I, do a lot, I do a lot of interviews with managers and players. Um, the more articulate, intelligent ones will tell me that it is by making terrible mistakes and getting things wrong that they are now in a position where they're fated and successful. I don't see how you grow as a person unless you're knocked back and make mistakes. That makes you twice as good as you would have been if you have a serene progress. 
So as we were saying, though, of course, he becomes the first United boss to win his first six games in charge. Paul, what do you think the likelihood is of Solskjaer being given the job permanently in the summer then? Well, when he took over um, as, as interim manager, you know, the, the word was coming out of Old Trafford that you know, it was very unlikely, let's put it that way, that, that Solskjaer would be, would be considered at the end of the season. Um, just, just because of his, you know, his lack of experience at top level, you know, as, as Alison said, you know, he failed quite, you know, spectacularly at Cardiff. Um, but now, after six wins in a row, as you said, you know, he's now the most successful Man United manager in terms of his start. He's won his first six games. He's got to at least come into Ed Woodward thinking, hasn't he? Really, you can't, you can't make such a big impression and not be considered for it full time. When Ryan Giggs took over from David Moyes in 2014, we all had this bounce. You know, they, they beat Norwich four 0 and. The role was spectacular when he came out of the tunnel and everyone was saying, oh, give it give it him for the next three, four years. And then they lost the following week to, to Sunderland at home. So that was um, quite embarrassing. But Oli has kind of kept this momentum going. And if he keeps pulling off wins like that, then he's got to be considered for it. Yeah, if he keeps doing this, if he wins every game, yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the main thing is that a strong finisher for Solskjaer in some ways strengthens United's hand vis-a-vis the next permanent manager um, because it's not going to be Pochettino or Bost or Allegri or Bost or, or, or whatever. You know, they, they're going to have that alternative and, it, and maybe it'll be a credible alternative if they go and run the Champions League, if they finish, if they finish top four, if, if the fans are all behind them. Um, but equally, I think we should also give a little bit of credit to Tottenham here. I don't think that they... <laughs> You know, it's not like United went in there and wiped the floor with them. Um, expected goals aren't the be-all and end-all, but they tell a pretty clear story. Uh, you know, I think it was, it was 2.0 to 0.9 for Tottenham. Um, whether those were great David De Gea saves or poor finishing from Spurs. Now, I'm always wary to criticize goalkeepers because I've never played goalkeeper, and I think most people, don't, including most ex-pros, don't really understand what goalkeepers do. Obviously, De Gea was... Was, was very good, but equally Spurs created an industrial quantity of chances. Um, and most days those chances will go in even against a goalkeeper of De Gea's quality. So I guess from, from Tottenham's perspective, if I'm Pochettino, I don't walk away from this thinking, oh my God, you know, we lost at home. What's going to happen now? I'm going to be like, you know what? We put in another really good performance and we were undone by a team that, that played well and maybe to some degree had chance and probability on their side. What do you reckon Gab de Poch's claim that that was the best 45 minutes he'd seen a Tottenham team play under his management? Is that, is that just boosting their egos after a dispiriting defeat, after creating so many chances, or do you think that was, apart from the finishing, amazingly good? I was actually thinking, I think they've seen them play better, yeah. because I think finishing <laughs> is part of the game. Mm-hmm. Um but no, look, this is this is what this is what managers say to give people lines afterwards. So they talk about that and don't don't keep asking him, "Are you going to join Manchester United?" or "What are you going to do with Harry Kane's injury?" and and, and whatever else. Right? It's it's classic deflection technique. But they did play, I thought, really well in the second half. They they showed a reaction in the second half, which is what which is what you want as a manager. So no credit to them. You mentioned Harry Kane's injury. We're still, of course, awaiting full confirmation of it all but suffered an ankle uh, injury in that game they've now lost to Son Heung-min who joins up with South Korea for the uh, Asia Cup <laughs> this is going to be a huge test isn't it for Maurizio Pochettino Allison? yeah because what's happened in the past is whenever 
the very reliable hurricane is injured, Son steps up. It's not like Son is a nobody and just has this lovely bit part substitute role. He's a fantastic player who improves his quality when he knows he has to for the team. That's why he's so important to Spurs. It's almost as if, if Harry Kane's not available, Son finds some reserve of talent he didn't have before just to make sure he, you know, he becomes a bit more of a poacher and adapts to playing um, central striker better. Uh, well, he gets that chance very often when Kane's there. But the point is he's adaptable and he, and he rises to the occasion. And, he, and it's been wonderful for Spurs that they've had that as the backup and if he's not there and Kane misses a few matches while Son's gone they will struggle they have struggled without those two players I think the main problem is simply that it's not that Fernando Llorente is a bad player but he's very very different and when you play Son up front he can do some of what Harry Kane does he can make the same he can make similar types of runs he can he can bring similar qualities to the table and so you don't have to adjust the way you play um but if Llorente is in there he can't do that so I think the challenge for Pochettino is going to be now he has to kind of redesign the way they play uh, around Llorente if that's who if that's who's going to fill in. I mean, he might do something wacky and play, I don't know, Lamela and Lucas Moura if he's fit up front or, or whatever. But, you know, Llorente up front means a substantial, substantial change in the way Spurs play. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It is just £3 for three months in our January sale. For the second podcast in a row, Gab, we are delving into the championship and a story that has certainly captured everyone's attention. The FA are investigating an incident at the Derby County training ground where a representative of Leeds United Football Club was caught spying on training. The Leeds manager Marcelo Bielsa admitted in his pre-match interview that he had indeed sent a staff member to watch the Rams train. The Derby manager Frank Lampard said, it's not right. I've never heard of going to a training ground on your hands and knees with pliers trying to break into private land to watch. Now Gab, as someone with vast experience of covering European football, what did you make of the outrage that has come from this story? Well, first of all, I'd like to establish the facts here. Okay. Okay. Because I've heard and read so many different things. Did this guy go on his hands and knees with pliers and did he break into, <laughs> like, did, did, did he break into private property and was he actually trespassing? And, and I'm in a difficult position here because I, I will concede my biases. I really like Frank Lampard and I don't know Marcelo Bielsa personally, but obviously I have to be on the Euro hipster foreigner bandwagon anyway, right? So I got to stick up for him too. But if this guy is trespassing on private land, let alone with pliers and damaging the Derby County training ground fence, then that's illegal. I mean, it, it, as I see it, right? If this guy is on public property, even if he's a Leeds United employee and he's watching training, then I don't see anything wrong with that personally. Um, and again, it might be a, a, a foreign attitude, be spying or not. I mean, spying implies you're doing it covertly. If it's somebody who's just watching training and he's not been asked to leave and he's allowed to be there, whether people, you know, as long as he's not misrepresenting himself or, or whatever, I don't necessarily, I, I don't really see an issue um, with this. There, there's a whole history of this. In fact, uh, well, at the 2016 Euros, Antonio Conte was so paranoid about this that 
He had massive fencing put up all around Italy's uh, uh, training ground because he was convinced that, you know, people were spying on him. Remember past World Cup, I think it was, I think it might have been in France where the Sweden team, they thought that somebody was watching from like a nearby building or some sort of higher ground. So partly as a joke, but they all wore like number 10. If you're there trying to gather information, trying to, 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 to scout, that's fine. Um, as long as you're not trespassing and as long as it's an open training session, right? I mean, am, am I wrong here? Am I being too close to Syed's position who argues that the uh, moral panic over lead spying is absurd? I thought it was part of football. I thought it was part of journalism for a start. Journalists are always trying to get the lineup for a big game before anyone else, particularly on international duty. So throughout the, throughout the years, journalists have been climbing over walls and fences and using binoculars and just trying to make sure they can make a good uh, guess uh, at who's there, lining up. Easy there. If you climb over, and I'm, I was an educated journalist in this country, so, but if you climb over a fence or a wall and you trespass, I don't think that's ethically acceptable. No, no, when I, oh, sorry, onto a wall. They wouldn't jump onto the other side. Okay. So it's like right. jump. It's like jumping up and down, so you can peep over the fence, isn't it? Shall I bring you what the Derbyshire police statement said, which actually will clarify things a little bit better? They they actually said that they had found a man who was at the perimeter fence of the training ground. He was spoken to. They said, despite media reports, no damage to the fence was found, and the man was stopped outside the grounds. So he obviously never made it. Through. Did you search him to see if he had pliers or was no, flying a drone no, or something? No, they just said no, no arrests well, were, well, were well, made and the man was sent on his way. All right, look, I mean, like I said, it's down to the fact for me. I mean, can we agree on that? I mean, we're, we're, we're the media court here, right? I mean, Natalie, if he's on public property, he's at the perimeter fence, they don't have anything shielding the training ground, they don't have any policy saying, please don't come and watch us train, then that's fine, right? I mean, well, I mean, okay, legally, he's done nothing wrong. Obviously, he can do that. As you say, it's public property. He can walk along there. He can watch it, obviously, quite happily if, if there's an, uh, you know, the ability to do so. I do think, from a moral point of view, it probably isn't the best thing to do. I think it should be, in a way, I, just because I think it's quite nice that you go into a game. The only facts you should know about the team is the research you've already done, not by going and watching them train, but by the video footage that you've seen of these players and how they play and the games, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's just how I would view it. But I can totally see every point of view that's being said. I don't think, I don't think there's a. I don't. I just don't get the moral outrage. I think it's slightly demeaning from Leeds' point of view that they feel they need to do that. As you say, mm. Natalie, the, the tools available for a pre-match analysis are extensive now. Yeah. The idea that you don't think you can win a game unless you've got some sort of clue that, of what the opposing coach might have said to a few players and what formation you might be playing. And it's also exactly what can you glean from that because often players will say when they get the team sheet on the day of the match they're surprised by what's been offered to them and things are things are changed in very private realms it's not it's not like they do coaching two days before the match and then it's set in stone it's I almost don't know what the point is of, of I, snooping I think, around I think having spoken to to somebody who often like to know what the opposition was doing uh when he was managing I think it was mostly twofold one is they wanted to see you do it to see about marking assignments on on set pieces and the like and set piece movements so that you know what's coming and two you might do it 
to try to assess the fitness of certain players, certain opposition players at a distance. Those are probably the two most valuable things that you're actually going to glean. Uh, there are other ways to do it. And, you know, again, some managers, obviously it's players shift, move teams. This guy played with that guy, whatever else. There are some managers who go out of their way and by working the phones, the way a journalist might, try to figure these things out uh, or asking their players or their or their coaching staff who might have worked with somebody who might have worked with somebody else or might have an agent or whatever to try and find this. The vast majority of managers, I don't think, worry about this beyond what they see on, on Scout or what their advanced scout sends them from the last game. Let's test it, if you like. There was one key pre-prepared, pre-practiced move in the game at Wembley, which was Pogba's diagonal pass out to Rashford and they said afterwards that was something we planned we knew what the space would be like we knew where the vulnerability uh, for Spurs would be if someone from Spurs had gone to the training ground and watched secretly Solskjaer take the session where they practiced that particular move do you think the result at Wembley would have been different? You know I, I think they would have they would have stopped it yeah, I think they would have pondered against it I, I just think it's I think it's part of elite sport. You you you, you try to get an advantage any way you can, really. I, 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 unless you are breaking any rules illegally, then I just don't, I don't see any problem with it. And I think they Spurs would have been able to stop, or would have at least got it in their game plan to stop United if if they knew that that's what United were going to do. I mean, it's a cost of money because they're in Dubai all week, United, so they'd have to send up someone out to Dubai to, <laughs> to, to, to find it. It would, it would have been a great job for the scout, to be fair, you know, get some tan and all that. But I, I, I do think, as, as long as you are not breaking any laws, then I don't see any problem with it. I think it's just a very clever thing to do. Hirsty, uh I was just curious, just for people, I mean, you and I have been to, and, and Alison, we've, we've been to different training grounds, the access for the public tends to tends to vary a lot. Um, Marine thinking at, at City's training ground a few years ago, they they actually had sort of some sort of weird public right of way that went right by the, the the training pitches. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. When City were at Carrington, their old training ground at Carrington, it had a public footpath that ran right along it, basically right past the right. the pitches where City were training. And that's, that's not where... the case anymore. Like, so if if, if I wanted no. to go and spy on City or indeed spy on United, I mean, yeah. assuming at United, it's even tougher. I, I'd need to get a hot air balloon or, or a drone or something. I mean, <laughs> and hope that they're not training indoors. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, it objectively, at certain clubs, they've gone out of their way to make it nearly impossible, right? Yes, so I remember. Um, that 2000, it was around. Um, it was when Mancini was in charge. Was it around 2010 that these pictures started emerging of of a Balotelli and I think it was Boateng at one point having having a scrap, and Mancini was was involved as well. Um, those pictures came out because there was a public footpath that ran alongside the training ground, so photographers were well within their rights to sit there um, with their long lenses and take photographs of the training session. Uh, now the new training ground at Man City is completely cut off. It's like Fort Knox; you can't really get in anywhere unless you know the, the, the perimeter gates are far, far away from the actual pitches. Um, and they used to have a problem with it at Chelsea, didn't they? As well, I think anyone who's, who's been to Chelsea's training ground knows that at Cobham there's a, a train station right next to it, and they use the bridge over the platforms. You can actually. If you stand on the top of that, you can see across the training pitches. And I remember going to a press conference there once 
and there was a member of Chelsea's backroom staff arguing with a photographer, literally it came to like physical confrontation because he was pointing his lens through this gap between the trees on the top of the bridge just to get photographs of the team training. <laughs> and then lo and behold, the week after, there's this massive board that's covering up the gap between the trees. So football clubs will do everything they can to protect their own, you know, to, to stop pictures getting out. And, you know, they would do because you can actually glean a lot from those training sessions just before the matches. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Waking up. On Sunday morning, if you ventured onto social media, you might have seen two names from the world of football that were dominating conversation. One was the Cardiff manager, Neil Warnock, who announced that he was pro-Brexit. The other was the former Manchester United defender, Rio Ferdinand, who defended the job Mike Ashley has done as the Newcastle owner. Now, both were heavily criticised for their opinions. Uh, and we're not going to get into the, the merits of those opinions. But Gab, I, I know you were very taken by the amount of attraction this has got. Yeah, and I mean, on Warnock, it's not so much that, you know, he he was pro-Brexit. I thought that drew the attention. It was the fact that he went out and he said, to hell with the rest of the world and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I don't know if this was the point he was trying to get across or whatever, but he could have expressed his pro-Brexit opinion in, in, a, in a slightly different way, put it that way. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's interesting because... It's such a taboo for, for for players and people involved in sport to express any kind of any kind of political opinion, right? I mean, I remember was it years ago? Was it was it Nigel Spackman who announced that he was voting Tory years ago, and and people still haven't allowed him to live that down? You know, I mean, and all these people do have them, and and, and there's an argument. I mean, it's different once you retire because then there's people who opine all the time, Gary Lineker. Um, but you know, I was just struck by that. And, and and sort of the response to it. Now, it's it's also the fact that it's Neil Warnock saying it, who is somebody who who has long divided opinion. But I don't really follow what the what the fascination is here. Do these people not speak up because it would be bad for business and bad for brands, for, for their brand if they spoke up? Or do they not speak up because there's not much between their ears <laughs> in some cases? If you stray away from football and you talk about politics or the theatre or 
whatever it is that isn't football in that space which is designed for whatever you say is now public and we're going to report on it and analyse what you've said you owe it to yourself and to the club you represent and the fans and so on to be able to cogently express it so the problem with Warnock if you watch his diatribe about Brexit he comes over as bigoted and poorly argued and angry what on earth did he hope to, to gain from speaking in that way? Whereas other managers have been asked continually about Brexit. I've asked players about it. And it is possible. Klopp, for example, is, is, is very moderate in his view, but very intellectually sound in it, which, you know, he, he talks about broader. He doesn't try and get into the British public. He just talks about the broader issue of stronger together and the European concept being a beautiful one. And whether you disagree with that or not, you can't say it's poorly argued or, or makes him sound irrational. And just to That's the, the other difference. side, Sean Dyche as well, who I'm pretty sure has also expressed a pro-Brexit view, he's done it in an articulate way. Yeah, and, and they a don't... way that makes sense. And it doesn't make it onto this podcast particularly because it's it's done well. We're, we're focusing on <laughs> okay. Warnock because it was astounding. And as quite a few people said on Twitter, he sat in front of a Visit Malaysia sign <laughs> yeah. telling the rest of the world to go well, do something yeah. to itself. What about what about Rio? And, and, and this struck me too, okay, because, and again, I'm going to reveal my bias here, is I really like the guy and I've had the opportunity to work with him numerous times. And that defense of Mike Ashley... And it was interesting, too, because Jay Humphrey, he didn't just let it slide. He, he did his job as a, as a journalist, and he called them on it, and he raised the, the, the counter-argument. And then, and then it, obviously, the, the natural conclusion is that because Rio's apparel company, which, by the way, I, it's not like he's Nike, right? I mean, it, I don't even know how lucrative it is to him, but it's not like this is his be-all and end-all and his raison d'etre. But obviously, he has a relationship with, with Sports Direct, which is owned by Mike Ashley, and so... People are now attacking him from, from from that end. Do you think Rio's sitting here now saying, like, me and my big mouth, I wish I'd just shut up and not gone to bat for it because now I'm just getting slaughtered for for defending one of the most unpopular men in, in English football? Only Rio can answer whether the reason he said what he said was because he's met Ashley and he likes the deal he's got with Ashley's company, whether it was self-serving I think all pundits have a duty to try and offer the other view. And there is an overwhelming point of view about Mike Ashley in the media and rarely do we hear another angle on it and often we accuse people sat in studios of being banal and boring and it's a you know little club no one criticizes anybody nobody takes the opposing opinion I completely back Rio Ferdinand's right to make the unpopular point I just hope he didn't do it through self-serving reasons Paul, what do you think? I mean, uh, obviously, we, we've just heard the, the two situations with Neil Warnock and Rio Ferdinand. I mean, it's always going to be a risk, isn't it, to express an opinion? I think just going back to the real one, George Colkin made a very good point on Twitter saying that it's a series of arguments based on a complete lack of empathy, understanding and research. You know, so for, you know, pundits, when they go on TV, they have a duty to have done their research to actually back their argument up with, you know, with statistical evidence. And he got it completely wrong when it came to the, you know, the arguments that uh, in, in support of, of Mike Ashley, you know, he didn't point out the fact that they are, you know, £144 million in debt. Um, just So that was that was an error on, on Rio's part, I thought. But, you know, he, he, in terms of opinions, you, you can't really win, can you, when it comes to the court of social media 
once you put yourself out there, you, you, you will be, you know, shot at from one side or the other. So I'm kind of a bit startled by how much uh, attention this has got and how much file abuse has been kind of thrown at, at Rio's way and, and to a lesser extent Warnock as well. Um, you can't really you can't really win when it comes to posting opinions on on social media, and, and that's why a lot of a lot of managers don't even go on it. A lot of a lot of players don't even go on it or look at their notifications at least, because you know it can be quite it can be. I'm speaking from personal experience, but it can be quite dispiriting seeing the um, the reactions uh, to, to some of your, your your tweets on on Twitter. People can say things that are really kind of nasty that they wouldn't wouldn't say to you in the industry and you know i for one don't really want to be reading that <laughs> hey i haven't got enough time of the day to occupy myself while i read all of them it's, it's just a complete false world isn't it twitter you, you can say something on there you can call someone a, an offensive name that you wouldn't say to them when you were walking down the street so I, I tend to stray away from putting opinions on twitter just for that reason which i suppose is, is quite sad in some respects because that is why the platform was created, wasn't it? To put your opinions out there. But you can't really do it, you know, without being shot at. It's time now for the results of our weekly predictions game, which got off to a bad start with the early kickoff on Saturday. I went for Arsenal. Gab, you went for the draw. Neither of us predicted that it would be West Ham that would come away with all three points. I blame Emery here, obviously, because if he'd started Ozil, then they would have had at least a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did both successfully predict the Liverpool win at Brighton. Ooh, that was hard. And we both backed Brentford to beat Stoke. Big win for Brentford, so we all got points there. Neither of us uh, predicted Manchester United win at Wembley. We both went for the draw. Mm-hmm. You know what? I kind of think that might have been a fair result. So we both probably should give ourselves points there. Or at least a pat on the back. Yes. We'll do that. Uh, In the big game in Portugal, I went for Sporting Lisbon to upset Porto. Gab, you went for the draw with a promised extra bonus point. If Bas Dost scored, but nobody scored, it was goalless. But you did predict the draw, so. And of course that means that I am victorious this week. Roll on 2019. The deficit (laughs) is now uh, just five points. 11 to six to Natalie. All right, as I uh, bask in the afterglow of my comeback, uh, how about some uh, quick hits? Liverpool get a big three points away to Brighton thanks to a Mo Salah penalty, and despite Fabinho lining up at centre-back. Alison, is it improbable wins like these that have you convinced that this is the year that your long-standing drought ends? Yes, quick hit isn't it (laughs) (laughs) no well I spoke to uh, Andy Robertson in the mix zone after the game against Brighton and well he made the very good point we don't have to play Man City again so let's go for it he also said Brighton they were tough at Anfield they were tough at the Amex and there was a sense that well we've got that one out the way and he mentioned the run-in twice it does feel it does feel like it's lined up as long as they just keep doing what they're doing yes this this drought is over Ooh. Okay, uh, Everton win their first Premier League home game since November, beating Bournemouth 2-0. But Paul, our own paper, calls them lucky. So are you going to blame Marco Silva for this mid-table mediocrity? I, I thought that Marco Silva would get Everton at least competing for a top four place this season. They are 17 points behind Chelsea. Um, so I'd, And, you know, Marco Silva, I guess, is the, you know, he's, he's the head of the the team so he should be kind of responsible for it and you know they have spent poorly 
in, in some respects. I don't know whether that's down to him or down to the recruitment structure, but he should certainly take a, a large part of the blame. Natalie, one for you. Nottingham Forest have a new manager, a man who used to play for them many, many years ago. Martin O'Neill is in charge at Nottingham Forest, replacing our old pal and Jose Mourinho's Aitor Caranca. What's in store for Forest fans? Oh, I don't know. You know, you're going from one exciting football manager to, to another in terms of the style of play. Look, look, Forest aren't doing too badly. They're ninth in the table. They're four points off the playoffs. So there's every opportunity that they could still make the top six if, if that's their aim, which you assume it would be. I saw them once, obviously, when they came to, to Griffin Park earlier on in the season. It was not enjoyable football under Eitel Karanka, from what I saw. Admittedly, it wasn't that long ago. Obviously, they had that thriller against Leeds where they won 4-2. It was a really exciting game. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm not sure that Martin O'Neill is, is necessarily going to bring exciting football. Well, why was Karanka sacked? Did they spend a lot of money? Well, he left. No, he left. Oh, he Eitel left. Karanka. He decided to leave. Didn't uh, quite like the way it was being run, I think you can sort of say, perhaps. Martin O'Neill, of course, has no history whatsoever of leaving and resigning from clubs mm. that, where he doesn't like how they're run. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how uh, Martin O'Neill gets on. Obviously, it's quite a quick appointment for Forrest to make to bring him in after Karanka's... Well, he, sorry, sorry, he's not taking Roy Keane with him, is he? What? This is what you don't know. This would be so exciting. I, I'm not sure. We'll have to wait and Roy see. Roy Keane back in Forrest. Well, exactly. How Both awesome of them going back. Be? So, yeah, we will wait to see what happens with that. But he is a legend in terms of when he played at Forrest. Um, but, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know if it's the most exciting appointment. We can assume, though, that... Martin O'Neill won't be going down the, uh, is, it, is it called the Brian Clough Motorway or whatever they call it? Uh, down to Derby to go and spy Brian on Frank Clough Lampard, Way, right? probably. Oh, is it? Yeah, but he's, he's not going to do that, right? And go and spy on Frank Lampard's training sessions. Well, you know, if it works for Bielsa. Alison, what do you make of Unai Emery right now? First, he says Arsenal have no money to sign anyone in January and can only then take players on loan. Then he leaves out Mesut Ozil. They lost away to West Ham and he says that for him, he's just another player. Oh, this is verging on hilarious. When when Emery uh, arrived in North London, people were falling over themselves to praise the way he, he was hard on Ozil, mm-hmm. who apparently in training didn't you know was a bit sniffy about the positioning and that his new manager wanted him to play and therefore Emery said well if you're not going to do what I ask you to do then I'm leaving you out and that uh, oh isn't he strong isn't he marvellous and now that Arsenal are starting to look a little bit creatively uh, bereft now people are saying what's Emery up to is he being influenced by how life was at PSG and he's overdoing the I won't let big name players dictate how I I am at the point the point is if you are the manager of a very highly paid, creatively gifted player, it is your job to know how to manage him well. And clearly his initial ways of dealing with him have backfired if he's still not able to include him in a game against West Ham, where really to lose against West Ham because they are more creative than you is a joke if you're Arsenal Football Club. Chelsea overcome Newcastle 2-1. Hursty. They're six points clear in fourth place and just a single point behind Spurs in third, that Spurs team that we've all praised so much. Yet Maurizio Sarri keeps saying they need two more players. Is he right or is he just whinging? I think he needs a striker, definitely. You know, they are, you know, like you said, they are well inside the top four, but they shouldn't be going for top four, really. Should they? they should be going for the uh, for the title. And that, what? Wait, they should be going for the title? They didn't win it a few years ago, didn't they? You know, they generally considered one of the... the yeah, they finished fifth last year. There's, 
I mean, yeah, that's they've also bit... got the best player in the Premier League playing for them. They've got a striker league. Morata's not very good, is he? He's only scored nine goals. Giroud's definitely, you know, he wasn't good for Arsenal, so he's not going to be enough for Chelsea, is he? Hazard's carrying them on his own. So they need, they need to get him out of that fourth line position. Doesn't do it for me there. Need a proper striker. You know, Higuain would be great for them. Obviously, he's worked with Sarri before. So, you know, definitely a striker. I don't think he's whinging. I think he's stating the fact. Gab, one for you. Mr Messi scored his 400th career league goal. Uh, can you put that in context for us? Yeah, so UEFA helpfully um, published a list of players who scored the most league goals in, in, in all of Europe. Now, what I can tell you is young Lionel might want to get on his bike because he's still 118 goals behind the record, which is held by a guy named Joseph Bican, um, who had 518. Ferenc Puskas had 517. The scary thing with Messi is that, you know, given he doesn't turn 32 until the summer, he might actually get there. Uh, There's a bunch of people in front of him, but really by the end of the season, he's likely to pass all of them. The only other guy who's ahead of him who he won't pass by the summer, presumably, is a guy named Cristiano Ronaldo, who also could hit the 500 goal mark. Uh, But obviously, because he's two and a half years older than Messi, you kind of assume that Messi will end up with more goals at the end of his career. All that said, if you look at these guys on the list, they all come from different eras. I think that the youngest guy retired more than 50 years ago. And that should just give us some sense of what we're dealing with in these two guys. It's, it's like they're, they're like time travelers from, from a different era. And still, even as much as we, we laud both of them, I still don't think we fully appreciate how freakishly prolific and how head and shoulders these two are above everybody else. That's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to our excellent guests, Paul Hurst, who doesn't read his mentions on Twitter. His Twitter handle, of course, is Hurst Class. That's Hurst with an I, like the former Sheffield Wednesday striker, David Hurst, who's also his uncle. My other guest today is, of course, Alison Rudd, whose sister is in the cabinet, right? Amber? <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. We've got, and Amber Rudd, as we discovered when we had Henry Winter on, uh, she was once passionately kissed by, by Henry Winter. Um, it's amazing. What a small world we live in. Very small world. Uh, remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just £3 for three months in our January sale. Search The Times subscription for more information. We're going to be back on Thursday looking ahead to a pivotal game in the race for the top four. It's Arsenal versus Chelsea. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.